0: All right. Wow, it's cozy today. We've got uh, two uh, distinct groups here. I'm going to have to be turning my head a lot. Maybe next time we can just choose one side. Everybody sit on one side. Before we get into it, let me just pray really quick. Father, we thank you so much for this text before us. We thank you that every bit of your word is inspired by your Holy Spirit and is good to teach us, to rebuke us, to train us, and to lead us and to guide us. And we thank you, Lord, that you want to teach us today. You want to prepare our hearts for things. You want to reveal things to us today. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, to know what you want to say to us, and that you'd give me wisdom, Father, to know what you would have to say through me today, that I would only speak your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> if you don't, uh, if you can't tell, I'm a bit sick, so... Uh, I'm just going to preach until my voice gives out, or we get done. We'll see which comes first. Now, when I was going through this, I love this chapter. I find it incredibly ridiculous. It's just, man, really, guys, this is, like, absurd. I'm going to have to step back a little bit. So this text I find a little bit absurd. It's a... It's just, there's a lot of irony in what's happening in this text, and we're going to go through it again and look at it in a little more detail, because, uh, yeah, Giannis did a really great job reading today. Thank you, Giannis. First time doing it. And, um, but when we just listen to it, we can maybe miss some of the things that are there. And I was thinking about, like, what's some, a good story of irony or whatever, but man, really, I, I found nothing that even compared to this text itself, and just how absurd it is. And, um... <clears throat> there are three things I think that are that are meant for us to notice that we're meant to notice. Uh, the writer is very particular in the way that he lays out this story, and he's doing that. Uh, there's there's a lot of purpose behind it. And three things I really noticed in this this uh, chapter especially. The first one that we see all through the book is God's providence. Remember, God is never mentioned in the book, and so uh, it, it, but yet He's always kind of clearly there within the text. The writer is kind of purposely putting things in such a way that it's it it can't be coincidence. It's not it's too crazy the way that they tell the story for it to have just happened. It must have been God behind it. God is kind of orchestrating what's happening and I think the the writer is really pointing for us to see that God is not going to let his people Uh, come to destruction not going to let them be destroyed he's going to save them even using these kind of everyday circumstances and another thing we really see especially in this chapter and again in other places in the book is literary irony and uh, which I, I love literary irony. It's, where, it's what a lot of our comedy, when you watch sitcoms and stuff, and the, you know, the guy walks in the room and they've just been talking about him and everybody knows what's going on, but the character, that's literary irony. And it's used a lot in film, it's used a lot in, in uh, sitcoms, and that's, this is what's happening in the text. And basically, we are, <coughs> as the readers, we have, we're given a lot more information than the characters themselves. We're not seeing the story unfold as the characters are experiencing the things. We get to see kind of the picture from above. We get to see everything that's going on. And this, was, this is what really sets up the humor of the story. And actually, as I went through it this week, I feel like every time I read it, I had to like laugh out loud at just how absurd Hammond's kind of situation is that he finds himself in. And lastly, I believe we are meant to see the way it's, it's really particular in kind of pointing this picture for us is to see the prideful, the sinful, prideful nature of Haman, and that this is really what leads to his destruction is his pride. He's just so riddled with pride that he can't really see what's going on, and ultimately he's thinking, of, he's thinking only of himself, only inward focus, and he doesn't see what's going on in front of him, and he is, ultimately he's believing that he can stand against God. And so I want us to to now kind of take a closer look at some of these points, some of these subtleties in the text, and then we'll get to kind of our main point today. Quick reminder, though, as it's mentioned in the text, Hammond, back in chapter 3, had kind of set a plan in motion, this is kind of the foreground of what's going on, that he wants to, he said, uh, he went to the king, he asked for permission that on a certain day um, there would be... They would, it would basically be lawful to kill Jews, is kind of what it was. It wasn't that they were going to bring in the military to kill them. It's just that if you didn't like the Jews, on this day, all the enemies of the Jews had the right to kill them. And um, that's what Haman had put into motion, uh, and ultimately because of his hatred for Mordecai. And Mordecai had called on Esther to you know, go and do something about it. It's basically, he, he tells her, hey, maybe, who knows, uh, you've maybe been put in this position for such a time as this. Again, we see God's providence kind of hinted at here, that God is at work. Maybe there's a reason why you're queen. And so, <clears throat> and, the, but, and she's kind of reluctant, right, because that could mean death. Going before the king without being called meant certain death unless the king pardoned you. So as you walked in, if he didn't lift up the scepter and invited you to touch it, then you would be killed. And so, uh, but she's, she says she's in anyway. She's going to save her people. And she says one of my favorite lines in the book, if I perish, I perish. No matter what, even if it takes, even if they take my life, I'm going to at least try. But she's still wise about it. She doesn't just run into the king and throw herself down and say, you know, he didn't know she was a Jew and say, hey, I'm a Jew. I, I, you know, save me, save my people. And, you know, this big kind of dramatic Teary, emotional thing. She's very wise, very subtle in how she does it. Instead of, of doing that, she throws a banquet. She throws a party. She invites the king and she invites her the kind of nemesis here in the text, Haman. So the king and Haman have been invited to this banquet with just them two and Esther. And at the end of it, the king is, tells her, "Hey, you know, what do you want? Even up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you." But all she says is, "Hey, come back tomorrow, I want to do another banquet." And that's when she's going to finally re- uh, reveal her request that she, "Hey, I'm a Jew, and can you save my people?" This guy, him is this bad news. We'll find that out next week. Spoiler alert. And so <clears throat> what we see here in chapter six is the night in between. This is the night in between these two banquets, and so that's kind of everything in this chapter is unfolding in between, just in this one evening. And it kind of it starts off with a sleepless night. Read chapter uh, verse one again. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. I, I immediately, I, I already feel like there's kind of a humorous nature to this. It's it seems a little just all ridiculous that from a sleepless night everything else is going to unfold uh in the rest of the book. And I imagine, you know, it's it's probably a bit practical. I bet Esther went all out, you know. Her, her banquets weren't, you know, stopping by McDonald's and some fries. It was real banquet. There was probably all kinds of exotic foods and everything there. And so maybe he was like a little too much lobster. I don't know, can't sleep, whatever it is. I know I've had more than a few nights of too much eating. And so he can't sleep. And so he thinks, you know what, I know, good bedtime story, that ought to do the trick, get me back into a sleeping mode, and so he thinks of the most boring thing he could possibly think of, to could be read, the events, this is like literally just the events of the kingdom, like everything that happened was recorded, you know, every time, uh, major events, but also just when people came and spoke to the king, and so I just, I can imagine that this would have put him to sleep pretty quick, under normal circumstances, but he didn't take account for God's providence to be at work. And of all the things that were read, and I have to believe it was the first thing that was read, because otherwise he would have fell asleep pretty quick, I'd imagine, is Mordecai's actions uh, where he stopped a plot to, uh, that was put into motion to assassinate the king. And that was in Esther chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2. And we see in, in the in chapter 2, verse 23, that it was recorded in the book in the presence of the king. So he knew it happened. He knew that Mordecai had done this. He saw it written in the book back in chapter 2, but he'd forgotten. He had forgotten about Mordecai and what he had done. Somehow this kind of quite heroic move of Mordecai to uh, save the king got lost in everything else. And then here we get, I think, a little bit of a glimpse of kind of what's going on, maybe in the thoughts of the king. And this is, maybe I'm making some presumptions here, but I think it, it seems to fit with the text. So he's here, he's in the middle of a, a sleepless night, and suddenly he's reminded of his own mortality. I think that's kind of the, the weight of what might have really happened that, in that moment. Because these guys that tried to kill him, they, had, they were guards uh for the palace, for the doorway to the palace they had access to him if they had really gone through with this plan it would have likely succeeded and so he like suddenly realizes whoa what did you just say they they stopped a plot from those guys they they would have succeeded i would i almost died what did we do for him what did we do for this guy does he have like a palace somewhere what i don't remember like oh no actually You didn't do anything for him. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? There's like an anxiousness, I think, in it. Like, whoa, this guy saved my life. I could have died, and we didn't do anything for him. I imagine the king didn't sleep the rest of the night. Maybe he's pacing, thinking about Mordecai, and how really grateful he is. I mean... Everything is a little bit different, you know, in the middle of the night. I don't know if you've ever, like, woken up from a dream at 3 a.m. or something, and, you know, you have a thought. Everything's a little bit more dramatic, a little bit more intense at that time. You maybe read a little too much into it. So he's like, well, you know, I could have died. I'm just like, we need to do something for this guy. I need to do something for him. So now he's really awake. Now he's like, you know, he's got the bloods flowing. There's no way he's going back to bed now. Now let's stop. Let's step away from the king. Check in with Hammond, our other character. Because I think Hammond too, probably didn't sleep that night. Remember last week, he was bragging about all the things that he had. Every, you know, I've got all these, I've got money, I've got land, I've got this and this, and I've got all these sons, and just all these things, just bragging about himself. But he, he can't find any satisfaction in it because Mordecai exists. And he doesn't like him. He hates him so much, he's so focused on that, that he can't even find satisfaction in all the things that he has, which was a lot. He was like second in command. He had a lot of authority, a lot of power, a lot of money, but he can't find satisfaction in it. And so he decided he gonna, he's going to you know, make an example of him. He has this pole built, again, 23 meters high, just ridiculously high, um, just to really kind of show the emphasis of his, his disdain he has for Mordecai. And so he wants to ask the king to hand Mordecai over to him to kill him because he hates him so much. So this is what he's been pacing all night, thinking about how he wants to kill this guy and how he's so excited about finally being able to ask the king. He's got the pole built. He's ready. Everything is set up. Mordecai is going to be made an example of. He's not going to tolerate this anymore. Now picture this with me. This is where the absurdity comes in. The king is pacing back and forth, wondering, how can I honor this guy who saved my life? And on the other side of a wall, Hammond's in the outer court, also pacing, getting nervous, getting excited about asking to kill and murder that same guy. It's just, all right, I find it hilarious. I'll just, I'll I'll let it sink in maybe. This is happening right at the same time. They're like literally on just divided by one wall. And so the king decides that he needs help, right? He needs some advice. He wants to do something great for Mordecai. He doesn't know what to do. He calls out, who's in the outer court? Who's out there? I hear somebody pacing. What's going on out there? Who's out there? They're like, Hammond's out there. Bring him in. And he's like, hey, Hammond, I've got this dilemma. You know, I'm trying to figure out how to really honor somebody. What would you do? What would you do if you were me and you really wanted to honor somebody? I mean, you wanted to go over the top. You wanted to bless somebody that really deserved it. What would you do? Hammond's eyes like light up. He's trying to like look cool. He tries to hold his excitement back because he's thinking to himself, who else would the king wish to honor but me? I mean, who else is there? Come on. And the just unbelievable, egotistical, prideful nature of Haman is just put on the full view for us in the text. He composes himself. Uh, I don't know, maybe, you know, give him your robe, your horse, parade him through the streets. But no, not just anybody can parade him through the streets. The highest noble in the, in the land Has to parade him through the streets, proclaiming, "This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor," which is just so over the top. I don't. Maybe you're not catching that, but that's that was a very high honor. You know, Joseph when he saved the entire people of uh, Egypt, the king honored him, but he gave him his like his kind of his second chariot and kind of his like the stuff that was his, but he didn't use it and. Haman goes farther and says, no, the stuff that you use, your robes, your horse that you ride, so the highest honor he could think of. And then my absolute favorite verse in the chapter, the pinnacle of the irony, verse 10. We have to read it again. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. So he's like, God, it's a great idea. Do it. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you suggested. Haman's like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. From Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Oh, to have been there in that moment and to see Hammond's face. Somebody needed a camera. Just, I mean, I just, he must have just all, all like color left him immediately. Just, uh, what? What now? Mordecai though who? What? the disappointment the shame i just imagine those moments when we're really humbled or really embarrassed you know everything kind of goes quiet and you're like like everything doesn't feel real can this be real is this some kind of nightmare maybe i did go to sleep and i'm dreaming this probably slapped himself on the face no it's not it's not a dream and we see this real practical look at what the Proverb in 6, Proverbs 16, 18 tells us. We probably have all heard in one way or another. I know I heard it a lot growing up. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, one subtle detail, and I have a lot of, we have a lot to go through. Let's see, but I want to put this in there because I think it's really interesting that you might miss, is of all the things that he had to do, I find most humbling for him is to have to robe him. It says twice, because it, it was his idea that he should be robed, whoever the king wants to delight in, and so it says that he robed him. He had to literally come so close to this, this person he hated with every inch of his being and put on the king's robe. I just, I don't know. I mean... It's it's a very, it's an intimate act. I mean, I'm sure he hated every minute of everything, especially being pulling him through the city. Just thought, I'm sorry, <laughs> guys, come on, like really, just picture this, man. I mean, he had to like walk through the city, pulling a horse, saying, "This is what the king does for people he likes." Just the absurdity, and it's the exact contrast of what he wanted to do, but killing him. So he makes this giant pole that's just ridiculously big, and he's like, I'm going to kill him with, like, gusto. I'm going to make it where everybody remembers this death. And instead, he's parading him through the city on a horse. It's just, oh, guys, you need to read this again and just, just enjoy it. Enjoy it a little bit. It's, it's good stuff. And the true level of his shame, right, is seen in, the, in what happens next. So afterward, in verse 12, afterward, Mordecai returned, uh, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. So he's like, well, that was interesting. Didn't expect that this morning, to be paraded around the city. But okay, I'm going to just go back to work. And Hammond rushed home with his head covered in grief. And he tells his friends, he tells his wife what happened. He's like, oh, you're never going to believe what happened today. I went in to, have, to, have the, to get the permission to kill him, and instead I'm parading him through the streets. And his, his friends' and wife's response tells us a lot more. Verse 13, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. That's his wife, close friends, and advisors talking. I think when, that hap- when you get to that point, it's you know, hard to hold on to any hope. The writer's pointing out that Haman has made his stand not only against God, or not only against God's people, but against God himself by standing against Mordecai. That's what I think the writer is trying to say by pointing out the Jewish origin. Hammond comes off looking quite foolish, and I'm sure feeling even more foolish because he's so blind to what's really going on around him. He's so blind to the reality. Even his family sees it now. They're like, dude, you... It's, your downfall has begun with him, and you're going to come to ruin. You don't see it. You're missing what's going on. And Haman doesn't see it. He hasn't seen it the whole time. Pride blinds us to everything outside of us. Pride blinds us to everything outside of us. And it turns us into fools. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? Hammond thought he was wise. He thought he knew what was going on. There is more hope for a fool than them. With the rest of our time, we're going to be talking about pride. And when I say I'm going to talk about pride, some of you are going to immediately think, well, it doesn't apply to me. The irony is if if we think that it doesn't apply to us, it's often the case that most applies to us. We don't want to be like Haman blinded by our pride not seeing what is right in front of us i want to ask you all when i say i'm going to talk about pride maybe i could have gone a sneakier way about it but now you know it's out of the bag now i really want to encourage you i want to encourage all of us as i went through this myself included to be to have our hearts open to really be ready to hear what god wants to maybe say to us about pride today. It's uncomfortable. Pride makes us uncomfortable. It makes us feel like we're parading our enemy through the streets. It makes us feel foolish when we're confronted with it. It's uncomfortable. But please consider that maybe God wants to deal with an unseen pride within your heart today that you aren't seeing in yourself. Let's not be quick to push that away and find ourselves being hamon and blind to what's happening because pride is a serious, serious sin. We often treat it as something insignificant. Somebody says, ah, I'm struggling with pride. We say, oh yeah, so is everybody. You know, it's pride, what are you going to do? I try not to be prideful most of the time, but you know, sometimes I find myself being a little prideful, but I guess it's not that bad. I'm not that bad at it. The reality is that pride is talked more about in the Bible than almost any other sin. I found just insane amounts of information in the Bible about pride. That God takes pride so seriously. In fact, he hates it. He hates pride. Hates it. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. I want to be on the side of God's favor not on the side of God's opposition. I don't want to be finding myself being opposed by God. And so I want to make sure I'm constantly checking my heart to be sure there's no pride hidden somewhere that I've missed. Pride will kill us more than any other sin because it prevents us from really crying out to God with the things that we really need to cry out to Him about. Because either we don't think they're there or we don't see them because we're blinded by the pride of our hearts. Pride keeps us so focused on ourselves and our own accomplishments. Or maybe it's even our own needs. Can, this can also be a type of pride. Pride makes us feel strong and that we don't need anyone. Because we can do it all ourselves. Pride destroys our relationships. It cripples us and isolates us from God and from God. Others and it blinds us to the reality of the world around us. Pride is so dangerous and yet very, very, very difficult to see in ourselves. You can't look in the mirror and see pride very easily. When we have this sin in our hearts, it also filters the way in which we see ourselves. We see everything with a with a, a filter. We don't see the pride. We see our humility, our compassion. Look how great we are. We're such good Christians. Look at all the things that we do. Look at all the ways that I serve. All the things that I know. And it blinds us to that, the root of pride in our heart. So I want to look at pride and what, what does it really look like in our lives? What does it actually look like? And Jonathan Edwards, <coughs> 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 oh, my voice is going. We'll see how, long, see how long we have left. Jonathan Edwards gives us seven subtle symptoms of pride that we can look for. I've kind of adapted here to make it, his language is a bit more old school than we're used to. Number one, and we're going to go pretty quick through these because, I don't know, you guys, you guys are having fun, right? We can go a little bit longer today, right? Yeah. Otherwise, I'll assume that you're prideful. Like, oh, I can't hear this. I had to leave early. Look at them. I'm just kidding. (laughs) All right, we're having fun. Number one, and as we go through these, I really, again, want to encourage you, think about it. I don't have time to go into a lot of application because it's seven points. And so I want to go through these. I'm going to look a little bit, talk a little bit about what they look like. But I really want to encourage you, God, just, just maybe just be praying, God, if I if this is me, if I'm struggling with one of these, and because I have pride in my heart, please show me, because we don't want to find ourselves uh, prideful and blind to what's happening. Number one, fault finding, fault finding. Pride blinds us to the real evil within our own hearts, and at the same time. It causes us to filter out God's grace and goodness in others. When we look at others, we only see the things wrong with them. Everything that they're doing wrong, everything that they're messing up, all the sin in their lives, every way in which they're not living up to the standards and the principles of Christianity that they should, that we think they should. We see that really quickly in everybody else. Are you quick to think, oh, I can see what's wrong with them, I can see what's wrong with them? We find the faults in everyone else. This is a, a symptom of pride. One example would be maybe you're listening to a message on pride. And the whole time you're just thinking, I know exactly who needs to be hearing this. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the recording and send it to him. You might be struggling with pride then. <laughs> you're like, oh, dang it. We're quick to find the faults in others when we're spiritually proud, we show, we show it in our constant seeking out the flaws in others even. But genuinely humble Christianity knows the evil in their own heart. Mm, I know that I'm a sinner and I need Christ. That's a humility. I need Christ. I don't have time to focus on the faults in everyone else. I don't have time to think about how everyone else is worse off than me, because that's really what fault-finding comes down to. Is we, we like to see the faults in other people because it builds up ourself, builds up our own pride. Well, if I see how they're not doing well, then I can think about all the things that I'm, how I'm better than them. But genuine humility in Christian, and genuine Christian humility is so is, is so aware of the sin of our own hearts we're not, we don't have time to focus on the sin in others. Number two, a harsh spirit, a harsh spirit. Pride causes us to forget the great grace that we've been shown through Jesus, especially in the way we deal with those who maybe annoy us, who bother us, who we can't stand as Haman hated and just could, was so annoyed with Mordecai. He didn't actually do anything. I mean, all he did was it all started because he didn't bow down to him. And that just—I can't stand that guy. And so he was. It—it it can these things can turn into a harshness. So we're harsh with these people that irritate us or frustrate us, and we can be judging towards them and harsh and easily irritated by them. And this happens in our hearts, but it can also be in the way that we interact, right? Maybe it's—it's it's crude jokes or taking a certain tone with somebody because. We're just kind of bothered. Another example is sometimes in Christian circles, the way that we pray, unfortunately, this can be revealed. You know, like if you have somebody in your small group and every time they pray, they're just always praying for, like, God, please help everybody else to be as good as me. Not that, but like, you know, you can kind of sense that, like praying for all of the problems in everybody else's life and let everybody else be gracious like me. Edwards says, we are like worms. We are like worms. So let us treat one another with as much humility and gentleness as Christ treats us all. Christ sees us all through grace. We should see others, see each other with grace. Not being harsh to the people that we're maybe easily irritated by or whatever it might be. So we don't want to have a harsh spirit. Number three, superficiality superficiality in pride we are most concerned with the outward appearance how we look on the outside that's why Hammond had to run home with his head covered he was so ashamed so embarrassed at that how he had been seen by others and when we do deal with sin we focus first, or primarily, on the sins that maybe other people might see. Maybe focusing on sins that will, uh, will be kind of very vocal about how we're struggling with this so that we can kind of appear holy in the way that we're dealing with this sin, or whatever it might be. Or We want to appear humble and holy and worshipful. And we do all these things kind of, we do them, them well from a certain outward perspective. But we avoid dealing with the rotten sickness of the deep sins in our hearts. That sometimes we even know they're there, and we're like, "Ah, oh, nobody knows about that." So, the pride, the lust, the laziness, hatred, or anger—things that are really deep within us—we kind of we let them fester because nobody would see it if we're dealing with those sins. No one's going to see it if we maybe improve in those things because we're so good at this facade we've built. We don't want to be superficial, only focusing on how everyone else sees us. Number four, defensiveness. Defensiveness. This one, I, I've, I, this one hurt me a little. <laughs> I can be defensive at times. Pride causes us to be easily offended and defensive when rebuked or ridiculed for anything. Somebody, And whether it's done well or done in, because somebody just doesn't like us, we're just, we're just really quick to tighten up and to maybe throw the first punch back. This is because we, we don't see faults in ourselves so clearly. And so we're quick to think, hey, who are they? Who are they to tell me? Who are they to tell me anything i've seen things i've seen the things they're struggling with. Who are they to give me any advice any rebuke that defensiveness is pride that's pride if somebody rebukes you if somebody even if they have, don't have their life together, man God might want to use that. We want to take things in we want to humble in the way we receive things. A humble Christian is not easily moved when attacked. And that's either if it's an attack from the devil, attack from somebody who hates you, whatever it might be from anybody. And A an humble Christian is not easily moved when attacked. A humble Christian embraces rebuke with thankfulness. We're thankful to be rebuked because we want to be aware of the sin of our own heart. We want to be growing and being changed for the better and they're not easily thrown into a defensive stance because they know their true foundation is not in what that person thinks of them it's in Christ Jesus and who Christ says they are so I don't need to be defensive because I know who I am in Christ sometimes that might mean we got to take a minute you know God I need to remember who I am in you because sometimes we can be really taken by those situations but I want to encourage you, defensiveness can be a symptom of pride. Number five, presumption before God. Now, I actually want to look at, this is a lot we could say about this, but it's two things I really want to focus on because, and I think of the verse where it talks about how God, that we can approach God, we want to approach God with humble assurance through Christ. We want to approach God with humble assurance through Christ. Now, if we take one of those two things away, humility or assurance, it can be a symptom of pride. If we take away humility, we can, get, we can forget the, the might and the greatness and the holiness of God, our Creator. The Bible says that we can boldly go into the throne room of grace because we're children of God. And that's true. But if that becomes tainted by pride... Where we come, we can come to God as if He owes somebody who owes us money. All right, God, where's it at? Where's my blessings? We can come with this kind of expectation, like God owes me, instead of remembering, oh man, everything is grace. Thank you, God, for everything you've blessed me with. Everything, every breath I take is because you are gracious enough to allow me to take it. There's this, there's this connection between seeing God as God, creator, Lord of lords, mighty, and also intimate as our father, someone we can truly go to when we need something. But we don't want to go, we don't want to lose that humility and come with this like, you know, this uh, kind of chip on our shoulder that God owes us something. And if we lose assurance, it can be equally prideful. Not as obvious, but equally prideful. If we go to God, we can we can feel like, hey, I'm not I'm not good enough to go before God. I don't I don't know. I think God I think God will is still wants to use me. And we just have this kind of constant battle with our assurance. This can be a symptom of pride. We're we're stating that we believe our sins, our weaknesses is bigger, is stronger, is greater than God's grace. My weakness is greater than his strength. And it's really a form of pride. You're not that bad. You're not that important. (laughs) That your sin, that your weakness would be so big that God isn't bigger. We don't want to have a symptom of presumption before God, whether it be, God, you owe me, or God, I don't know, I don't think you're really big enough to save me. Those are presumptions that are caused by pride. Number six, desperate for attention. Desperate for attention. This is an obvious one. This is the pride out loud. Pride loves to talk about itself, talk about its accomplishments, its greatness. Hammond gives us a great example last week. Man, He just went on and on and on about all the things he had and how great he was. Pride is hungry for respect and attention and really even worship from others. We want to be worshipped. We want to be seen and respected. We want the attention, the love of other people. Now that might look very different to each and every one of us. I want to give some examples that are a little bit maybe might throw you off. So we do have the obvious, the person who's just boasting, always talking about themselves, and oh, you know, I did this, and oh, I was, you know... Vacationing in the Bahamas last week, and just I don't know. Or it might be education, talking on and on about all of the things they know, and just really making sure they talk, put in every uh, you know book reference and thing that they can. They're just really trying to talk about themselves, right? There's that kind of boasting. We've seen that. That's usually a bit. We're usually a bit repelled by that naturally. But maybe. It's always saying yes to people. Yeah, I can help you out. Oh, yeah, you need some help? Yeah, I can help you out. Oh, you need something? Because we want to be needed. We need to be needed. I need that. And so we always say yes, always say yes, always say yes, really looking for ways that we can serve. But really, it's because we're trying to eat up that desire that we want, that love, that affection. We want to be needed by others. I'm not saying it's bad to help people. Like, oh, I'm sorry, Pastor said I can't help you. Can't help you move, man. Sorry. I'm trying to say no from now on. But we really want to check our hearts about what's our motive here. Because sometimes I've seen where people are burned out. They've got nothing left to give, but they just keep saying yes. And it's this kind of, this pride of, of just needing to be needed. It can be, it can be obsessing about marriage, I just, I need to be married. Oh, I'll be happy if I was married, if I just found a good man, if I just found a good woman. And really, it's this kind of, this pride of, of needing to be adored, needing that kind of affection of someone else that we're not finding satisfaction in Christ. And I can tell you as a married man, if you enter a marriage with a need that you're trying to fill from them, with, from affection, you're going to be really, you're going to have a, a struggle in your marriage. You need to come in whole, you need to be like, I've, I'm, my identity is in Christ first. So let's do, then you can do partnership together in life. It won't work if you are trying to be, find a satisfaction for yourself that's rooted in pride. So that, that kind of obsession with marriage can be something also from pride. Or it can also be this kind of over-fascination with, you know, with stuff, getting the, a bigger house or a better car or more money, and all of it about how people see us how people view us. It boils down to wanting the approval and glory and love and affection and adoration of others rather than from God. We're not satisfied in our relationship with God and so we demand it from the people around us. And that desperation for attention can be a symptom of pride. Number seven. Number seven. This is one of the most dangerous ones neglecting others, neglecting others. Pride will cause us to be selective about who we feel is worthy of our time, who is worthy of our respect or our honor. Are we quick to honor those who are wealthy or powerful or have authority, who have worth to us? Are we quick to honor them, quick to value them, Do we take too much pleasure in the honor and attention of the people, of these people, these people who are above us, these people we have just this, we've kind of put on a pedestal that we find as worthy, as as great, whatever it might be, whether it's physical wealth, education, or whatever, there's all kinds of ways that we can elevate people, fame. Do we find too much pleasure in their attention on us? And are we quick to look down on those that we find weaker than us? The weak, the inconvenience, the unattractive, the poor. Are we quick to, mm, if I had a choice, I'm always going to choose the people above me rather than those who are below me. Romans 12, 16 says this. Paul tells us, live in harmony with one another. He's talking about everybody. Live in harmony with everybody, with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Basically, don't think you're above them. Don't think that you're too good to hang out with somebody that you think less of. You have a wrong mindset. That is pride. And that's something I think, I mean, that's another one. I I mean, I think first, no, I don't deal with that. But when you really start to think about it, if somebody that you really admire, whether it's maybe uh, somebody, in a, a movie star, or maybe it's an athlete, or maybe it's a theologian, I don't know, somebody that you really honor and really admire walked in the door right now, what would you, would you, oof, crazy. I wonder if I'll have time to talk to them. You know what I mean? Like, you get a little giddy, like, oh, that's, that's cool. We're affected by it. We are, we're all guilty of this, I think, in one way or another. Maybe just me, I don't know. You guys are looking at me like, I don't know what he's talking about. There's nobody that I would honor but Jesus. Right. We need to be careful with this. We don't want to find ourselves too honoring, putting too much honor on people and then neglecting others. This can be so easy because our culture is constantly reminding us that people with wealth, people that are attractive, people that have power, they deserve our adoration. I saw that nod. I wasn't talking about you. They deserve our our adoration. That's what the world tells us. Philippians 2 3 through 4, Paul tells us do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather, in humility. Value others above yourselves. Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Mm, That one stings a bit. And we can really tie that into everything we do. We can do good things for our own gain. Am I really seeking to elevate those around me? Am I really seeking the interests of others above my own? Hammond could only think of himself. Let us not be so blind. When the king says, Hey, I want to honor somebody, he's just like, his mind goes completely blank except for a big giant picture of himself. There is nobody else. He could only mean me. Who else would the king want to elevate? So now imagine that famous person that you have in your mind walk through the door, but they don't want to spend time with you. They want to spend time with someone else. We can, we, we're, can, we, can we fathom this? Can we surrender ourselves can we really want other people to be blessed, even if it means giving up a blessing? Hey, how awesome it is that they get to, to, to talk with that person. How awesome it is that they get that job promotion, even though I, I, I wanted it, but hey, it's, I'm, I'm glad that they did. I'm glad that they did. Can we really, really genuinely seek the elevation of others above our own interests? Oof. That's, hard. That's a hard one. When we're inward focused, we can't think about anyone else as we saw with Haman. This could not be further from genuine Christian living that we're called to do. When we follow Christ, we, are, we see the example of one who sacrificed everything, laying down his own life for us. This is what we're called to do. So I want to encourage you, don't let pride destroy you. I told you guys we're going to go late, sorry. I'm only about halfway through, so hang in there, hang in there. It's a lot truer than you think. I want to talk a bit about finding freedom from pride. This is too serious, we need to, let's go through this. Finding freedom from pride. Maybe you're thinking, hey, you know what, there's a couple of those, I felt it a little bit, I felt it. Maybe I am struggling, what do I do now? I just want to go through a few things that we can kind of keep in mind. Number one, admit that you have the problem. Pride loves to convince us that we aren't prideful. But once we say, "Mm, I am prideful, I am struggling with pride, I am focused sometimes too much on myself, James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will lift you up. He will lift you up. Humble yourself before him. Confess your pride to him. Lord, I am prideful and I don't want to be. I need you. I need you to remove this pride from my heart. I can't do it on my own. Pray as David prayed in Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting we can pray that god would show us the true nature of our heart and that he would remove the things that are grievous the, the sins the pride the lust the evil desires pride fills us and leaves no room for anyone else psalm 104 says in his pride the wicked man does not seek him does not seek god it's talking about does not seek the lord in all his thoughts, there's no room for God. In all his thoughts, there's no room for God because it's all themself. We fill up too much of the space with our own desires, our own needs, our own, uh, or even if it's our own insecurities, it's also just kind of this inward focus, me, 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 me. There's no room for God. Where's God gonna go? Make sure there's room for God. And in that, I would say, take time and pray. Pray. You say, I am praying. Here's where I would, I would kind of encourage you to take the next step. Pray for other people. Pray for other people. When we are struggling with pride, and this is also maybe a... a this is not Edward. This is Brandon. Uh, a subtle kind of obvious symptom of pride is when we only pray for ourselves. Oh, God, help me with this. Oh, thank you for this. It's just always me, 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 me. That's not what we see in the New Testament, man. They were, even Jesus prayed for his disciples. Pray for others. This is especially important when it comes to praying for others because as, as Christians, as humble Christians, humble Christians are going to be praying Christians. And when we pray for others, it reminds us that we're not the center of everything other people are struggling as well maybe facing more difficult things than we are it's not all about us and we're united then we're united i love that i know it's kind of a bit dark but i love how uh, edward says we're like worms and we're all given the same grace and this when we're praying for others it reminds us that we're all this in this great need of christ we're in this great need for a savior And also it's a a way of countering that symptom of pride, of uh, being being inward focused. When we're praying for others and we're elevating them then above ourselves, above above our own needs. I see uh, that my needs, Lord, but I want to take my time, my prayer time, to focus on the needs of others. So it's just a, a direct application of that. And lastly, I just want to encourage you again. I don't the band actually to come up, so we've gone a little over today. To remember Christ as the example. He is the ultimate image of love, of humility. John 4, 10 says, this is love. Not that we loved God, not that we did anything, not that we deserve anything, not that we've accomplished anything. It's not about us. It's not what we've done. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He didn't deserve it, we did. And yet he gave himself up humbly for us so that we can experience true grace and love. And we're all equal in that. There's no room for pride when we are filled with the love of God. I invite you now to stand as we close in final song. And I also encourage you, if you have something on your heart when it comes to pride, take this time now. And come and humble yourself before him and confess those things that God would rid them, rid you of them.